The parks and pathways that wend up the northern flank of Sydenham Hill are some of the few places in London where you can get lost in nature and forget for a moment that you're in the midst of one of the world's largest metropolises. Through Sydenham Hill and Dulwich Woods, up to Sydenham Wells Park and into the northern reaches of the much larger green space just to the south, you can surround yourself with more trees than you'd expect in a country famous for its cities and pastures. And then, you emerge into a vast, grassy open area and feel almost like one of the pith-helmeted explorers so popular in the literature of the era in which these parks opened. There are traces here of an enormous lost structure. Terraces, statues of sphinxes, even an island of dinosaurs. Stairways leading up the hillside clearly once led to something substantial. The size of the open space shows just how huge this something was. In Congress as it may seem in the midst of London's leafiest neighborhoods, the building that stood here was, in its time, a celebration of technological progress and the reach and power of the world's mightiest empire. The building itself was a marvel of the industrial age and couldn't have existed in any earlier era. The materials couldn't have been gathered, the labor necessary to build it couldn't have been mustered, and the knowledge necessary to put it all together simply wouldn't have existed. Its name, the Crystal Palace, succinctly summed up what it was, a pavilion of iron and glass that housed the wonders of the world, with Britain, its empire, and its capital taking center stage. Londoners saw it as the symbol of the age in which their city was, for all intents and purposes, the capital of the world. When the Crystal Palace burned down on this date, November 30th, 1936, it was hard not to see it as marking the end of an era. But in fact, the era it symbolized had come to a close three decades earlier. When it opened in 1951 in Hyde Park, that era was at its height. The Crystal Palace was the brainchild of one of the members of the royal family that gave the age its name. Alfred, Prince Consort, was fascinated with technology and science, and he became a driving force behind the great exhibition of the works of industry of all nations, often called the Crystal Palace Exhibition because of the building at its center. Photos and engravings from the time show an eclectic collection of bric-a-brac inside the palace. Fountains, statues, scientific instruments, vases, weapons, lampposts, even a few live trees that showed off the revolutionary, glass-clad nature of the building itself the real star of the show, so beloved that it would be rebuilt in Sydenham after the closing festivities. The Great Exhibition was the most prominent act of patronage by Britain's most prominent patron of science and industry, at a time when ideas emanating from the United Kingdom were shaping our understanding of the world around us, as well as the physical face of that world. It's not his name that will be forever associated with this era, though, but that of his much more prominent and influential wife, Victoria, Queen of Great Britain and Ireland. Her long reign encompassed the UK's Golden Age, and saw not only the scientific breakthroughs that so fascinated Alfred, but a flourishing of art and literature, as well as the less uplifting extension of British economic and imperial power across the globe. The Victorian era has left us with many legacies, some good, some decidedly not so. While the Crystal Palace may lie in ruins, it represents the most tangible of these legacies. The architectural traditions and innovations that gave rise to the Crystal Palace show how tightly science and culture were intertwined in Victoria and Albert's Britain, while the spread of those traditions across the globe, made possible by new naval and communications technologies, laid the foundation of modern styles that would have amazed, and probably shocked, even the most radical Victorians. 
Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orkut, and over the next four episodes, we'll be exploring the chaotic world of Victorian architecture, where new ideas, materials, and techniques collided with old traditions and styles, with glorious and unexpected results. We're starting at the Crystal Palace because both its supporters and critics were absolutely correct in seeing it as the structure that summed up what it meant to build in the Victorian style. Though as we'll see, this never really was a single unified style. To be a Victorian architect meant, quite simply, that you were active while Victoria was queen, which she was from 1837 until the dawn of a new century in 1901. It also generally meant that you were active in Great Britain or Ireland, though the reach of the British Empire was such that Victorianism cropped up from Canada to India to Australia, and as it entered a gilded age of its own, even the democratic United States bought into this monarchical style. It was a tumultuous and fascinating time in the history of both the arts and sciences, and the builders of the era created the backdrop against which the clashes of ideas, and in some cases, of people with ideas, played out. It's not hard to transport yourself back to this fascinatingly boisterous era, in part because some of the greatest English-language authors were active then. Two in particular have shaped how we think of the Victorian world and its greatest city. Charles Dickens visited the Crystal Palace during the Great Exhibition, though he found it more overwhelming than impressive. He was a well-known author long before Victoria's coronation, but in the first decade of her reign, he published what is surely his most read work, A Christmas Carol. Many holiday traditions can be traced back to the book, which also painted what is, for many people, the quintessential image of industrial London. As Scrooge traverses the past, present, and future with the three spirits, he passes through a world brought to life so vividly by Dickens that buildings and the activities taking place in them often steal the scene from the human characters. There's the forbidding Scrooge and Marley counting house with its fog-shrouded church tower perched menacingly above. Scrooge's gloomy house on a courtyard seemingly lost and isolated from the growing city around it. The snow-covered village of his youth the lively and colorful shops selling everything from fish to fruit, and the seedy back alleys of London where even the sheets from a deathbed have a price. I don't think anyone's ever surpassed Dickens in being able to take a reader back to Victorian Britain, but if anyone came close, it was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In the last decade of Victoria's reign, he published a lesser-known and much less maudlin Christmas story, The Blue Carbuncle. Two of its main characters are his most famous creations, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. But as is always the case in his best stories, the third main character is London itself. I'm especially fond of the scene setting in this one, as Holmes and Watson track both a jewel thief and, of all things, a Christmas goose. There's the obligatory handsome ride down darkened streets, a brief interlude in a cozy, fire-warmed pub, and a confrontation under the guttering gas flares of Covent Garden Market. These literary bookends of the Queen's reign have done more than any other authors to shape our cultural memory of the Victorian era. And while the ultimate Victorian building may be long gone, many of the structures that play a part in the stories of Dickens and Doyle still stand. It's these sites that we'll visit over the next month, following three architectural threads that, conveniently, parallel Scrooge's voyage through time with the Three Spirits. But before we consider what the past, present, and future meant to Victorians, I'm going to play the role of Marley's ghost and provide a little context to introduce a few of the big ideas that were in the air during the Great Exhibition, without which none of what's to come would be remarkable.
Dickens, the social reformer, and Doyle, the occasional British jingoist, are a great example of just how dissonant Victorian voices could be. In fact, it's not hard to find pairs of British authors that make a mockery of any attempt to find a unified Victorian style. There's the rural realist Thomas Hardy, and the urban radical Oscar Wilde, for example. There's the introspective Charlotte Bronte, and the activist George Eliot. And, maybe most extreme of all, the sexually charged horror of Bram Stoker, and the whimsical satire of Lewis Carroll. A visit to the Tate Britain Gallery will quickly show that the world of visual arts was equally disunified. You'll see the works of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, which, despite the name, was active in the middle of the 19th century. Their paintings are colorful and meticulously executed, but very explicitly look back to the art of the Middle Ages. At exactly the same time, J.M.W. Turner mastered light and color to create dreamlike and almost abstract scenes, the likes of which would not be seen again until well into the 20th century. British science had recently given birth to two earth-shaking ideas that generated wide-ranging and very public debates. The Scotsman Sir Charles Lyell made a compelling case for the immense age of the earth, while his younger colleagues, the Englishman Charles Darwin and the Anglo-Welsh Alfred Russell Wallace, gave the world the theory of natural selection and its best tool for understanding the diversity of life. At the same time, the equally brilliant Sir Richard Owen gave countless animals living and extinct the names we still know them by today, but did so while arguing that this diversity showed evidence of divine creation, not change through time. If there were one area of British life that you'd think would be free of this kind of ideological debate, it would probably be politics, since we often use Victorian as a synonym for stodginess and conservatism. And it's true that the era is named for a monarch, and that the politician most often associated with Victoria was the Tory, Benjamin Disraeli. But the very fact that Disraeli was born into a Jewish family shows that the doors to wider participation in British politics had begun to open, and the Queen's reign was marked by a strengthening of democracy and numerous efforts, some more successful than others, to extend voting rights beyond Britain's elites. Even more radically, it was in the reading room of the British Museum that the German expat Karl Marx did his research for the Communist Manifesto. Internationally, Britain's empire, like others before and since, grew and was maintained through violence, repression, and deception. The Indian Rebellion of 1847, South Africa's Boer Wars, and the Opium Wars in China provide especially horrific examples of all three. At the same time, the few remaining exceptions to Britain's anti-slavery laws were removed in 1843, and the Royal Navy played a key role in suppressing the slave trade. While Victoria's reign also saw the first steps towards the liberation of Ireland, Britain's oldest imperial conquest. It was from this bubbling cauldron of ideas and ideologies that the iron columns of the Crystal Palace were forged, and while the building itself may be long gone, a few of the works associated with it remain that illustrate how these ideas could take physical form. The most visible remnants of the Crystal Palace both reflect the Victorian obsession with the past. The sphinxes that flanked the entrances escaped the fire, and still sit beside stairways that now lead nowhere in particular. Of course, the United Kingdom wasn't doing anything new when it compared its empire to those of past civilizations, in this case ancient Egypt. See last season's episode on the Forest of Fontainebleau for some examples of how the French had been doing this for centuries. 
But the prehistoric animals on an island at the bottom of the hill are something different. Commissioned by Sir Richard Owen and built by the first great paleo artist, Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins, the dinosaurs, marine reptiles, and mammals are no longer even close to accurate, but they are spectacular. The best preserved are a pair of iguanodons, a dinosaur that filled the role in 19th century popular culture that Tyrannosaurus or Triceratops does today. The word often used to describe them is elephantine, and elephants are both a good and very intentional comparison. They're huge, grayish-green in color, browsing on leaves, and maybe most importantly, they're posed on stout, column-like legs quite unlike the sprawling limbs of modern reptiles. Owen's mammal-like behemoths and the name he coined for them, dinosaurs, meaning fearfully great lizards, were both salvos in an ongoing battle between him and the allies of Lyell, Darwin, and Wallace over the meaning of the past. Lyell had made it clear that this past was much more extensive than anyone had previously imagined, and the British public quickly embraced their country's ancient heritage, hence the earthworks illustrating England's major geological formations facing the dinosaur's island. Owen saw the Crystal Palace dinosaurs as an opportunity to take advantage of the Victorian fascination with all things prehistoric to make the case against evolution. Surely, if organisms changed and improved, he reasoned, we should see small, simple reptiles becoming larger and more complex through time, while Iguanodon seems to show exactly the opposite. Early evolutionary biologists could and did point out that evolution doesn't improve organisms, it just makes them better suited to their particular environment. In the end, it was this side that won the day, but the debate ranged for much of the Victorian era, soon moving out of Crystal Palace Park and into a series of new and spectacular museums. It's these museums, especially a trio in and around London, that we'll visit in the next episode to see how the interpretation of the prehistoric past and an architectural focus on more recent history came together to produce some of the best examples of Victorian design and illustrate its major themes. walking around the Crystal Palace grounds, and you'll see that the past wasn't the only thing on the minds of Victorian exhibition-goers. The huge terraces that rise up from the Iguanodon's island show that big things were afoot in what the Victorians would have seen as the present. Neither glass nor iron was anything particularly new at the time, but to be able to manufacture them on a large enough scale to fill in the palace's massive footprint, that was truly novel. The technology required was as cutting-edge then as VR and AI are today which made the building an unsubtle statement about the virtues of the country that could design and build it. The Victorian glorification of science and technology is also illustrated by the biography of its designer, Joseph Paxton. In earlier eras, such a monumental structure would have been entrusted to only the greatest of architects, such as Christopher Wren, whose iconic St. Paul's Cathedral, you've seen it in nearly every movie or show set in London, sits a few miles north. Paxton was not an architect, but a gardener and an engineer, one of the most prominent members of an influential generation of builders who drew as much from a knowledge of science as of design. We'll meet many of these figures in the third part of the series, where we'll travel across Great Britain to see how industrial innovations allowed buildings to be constructed on a scale never before possible, and how engineers took an art form that had previously been reserved for the elite 
and made it something everyone could use and appreciate. When it became clear how popular a destination Sydenham had become since the rebuilding of the Crystal Palace, and what a lucrative opportunity this presented, railroad companies began opening stations near the park. You can still arrive by train to the one at its southern edge. Only the foundation of another, more opulent gateway to the palace remains. It would take as active a mind as Conan Doyle's great detective to see how these transportation hubs might impact the future of architecture, but the clues were there. These stations were part of a rapidly growing network of rail lines that not only connected Sydenham to the center of the city, but that extended across Great Britain. And the connections didn't end there. Thanks to a massive naval and commercial fleet outfitted with the latest in steam engine technology, London's leafy suburbs were part of a network that included Melbourne, Calcutta, Cape Town, New York, really everywhere on the planet. In the final episode of this series, we'll explore how advances in transportation and communication shrunk the globe, making Victorianism a truly international style and, unexpectedly, paving the road for the rise of modern architecture in the 20th century. Thanks for joining me on the first leg of this Victorian voyage. This series is a long one, picking up again next week and then running every other Tuesday through early January. So be sure to check back as we explore the fusion of science and art that made Victorian architecture possible. If you're inspired to travel to any of the destinations discussed in this series, I'll be posting all the relevant information on the Voyage's website, voyagepod.wordpress.com, following the final episode. But you can always head there for information on previous destinations, or to send me any questions, comments, or episode ideas you might have. I'll also be posting information about the music used in each episode, which in this case will be a medley of 19th and 20th century British composers. I have a deep and abiding fascination with the weirdness of Victorian architecture, as I hope will become very clear over the next few episodes. And if you enjoy listening to this series as much as I'm enjoying putting it together, please help grow Voyage's audience by rating, reviewing, liking, and subscribing on the podcatcher of your choice. And it being the season of giving, how about gifting your friends by telling them about the podcast through word of mouth, or the social medium of your choice? I'd like to think they'd appreciate it, and I know I would. And speaking of giving, this episode is being released on Giving Tuesday, and I want to shout out a charity that's very relevant to this episode, the Friends of Crystal Palace Dinosaurs. The statues are relics of a hugely important period in the history of science, and the organization does great work maintaining them. No easy task in as wet a climate as England's. Of course, there's lots of other great organizations out there that help preserve our world and the stories it tells. And if you have the means, I encourage you to find one and support it. Thanks, and I hope you'll join me again in a week, and for all the voyages to come. <laughs>